Uh, having said all that, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Revelation. And we're going to finish the seven letters to seven churches series. And, and you can feel free to start being afraid right now. Because this is the only letter. I'm, not, I'm, I'm joking. I'm not. You don't need to be afraid. But this is the only letter with no affirmation in it. It's the only letter with no affirmation in it. It's the, it's the letter to the church at Laodicea. And so let's kind of just take a quick, quick look. But this was our map that we've been working off of. And, and again, you see that Paul, or I'm sorry, John has written a letter. And it's a letter that's a prophetic letter. It's an apocalyptic letter. And it's going to go throughout Asia Minor in a time of incredible turmoil and persecution. And it's going to go to some of these different sized churches made up of different demographics, facing different issues and having varying degrees of success in living out their faith. And so it kind of spins around, it's, it's called a circular letter. A lot of the letters, Paul's letters, a lot of letters would have been written with this idea that a courier would take and read it kind of in a, in a circle or that a letter written to one kind of congregation or city or church would be taken to others as well. And so that's kind of the New Testament world and these sharing of letters. And this letter goes around and then it ends at Laodicea down here on the bottom right. And Laodicea is a fascinating study for many reasons. Uh, one of the key things is it was a very rare thing in the Roman world, but Laodicea was a free city. And a free city meant that it was able to come up with its own kind of laws and rules and, and govern itself. If you want to envision this, it would be a lot like Vatican City in Rome today. It's kind of this isolated free city uh, that was incredibly, incredibly wealthy. So we'll show you just a couple pictures. Uh, they've done a lot in the last 10 years. So if you've been to the, the Bible lands maybe a decade or so ago, uh, Laodicea would have, would have still been buried for the most part. But in the last decade, they've done a, a whole lot of excavation um, to that whole ancient city. And you, you can walk down the roads, see the temples, see the, the homes. All of this would have just been underneath dirt that they've kind of now excavated out. So it's an incredibly fascinating city. In these days, it's an incredible, uh, incredibly beautiful city to go to. But the key thing that stands out here is just its prominence and status and wealth. There was an earthquake that hit the city in 62-63 A.D., and uh, level, basically leveled the city, as did uh, uh, the earthquake level a lot of the cities in um, Asia Minor, Sardis and others. And so this earthquake comes, levels the city, and Rome offers to rebuild the city uh, for free. Kind of, we'll come in with federal money, so to speak, and we'll rebuild it for you. And the, the townspeople of Laodicea refused it. So it'd be like Bend going through an economic collapse and being so confident, proud, wealthy, that it would say to the federal government, we don't want any of your federal money. And this isn't just kind of an anecdotal story. Listen to Tacitus. Tacitus, the Roman, writes, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. It's fascinating when you see these passages in Scripture that really intertwine with spiritual truths, historical realities. Uh, I mean, it's just wild to see how this is a real place with real life, real decisions, real people like us experiencing 
um, the flow of events, and to kind of wrap yourself up in that. So if you want, just kind of think of this city and the self-sufficiency of their own wealth, their own resources, their own can-do spirit. And in that, Jesus has John take down his words to this community of faith, this church, this community that ostensibly goes by his name in this town of Laodicea. And he says, write this. And this is Revelation 3 in verse 14. These are the words of the amen. Amen in Greek simply means, means let it be, let it be so, truly. And that's why we get in old translations, verily. So it would translate amen, amen as verily, verily. But basically, these are the words of the amen, the one who says let it be. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Again, Jesus starts with these claims to authority and then gets in to the words he has for the church. Verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot, uh, neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. And so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich and I have acquired wealth and do, do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. And those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What do we make of this? The first thing I want to do is kind of, and I, I, you guys all wonder how we can't figure out technology. It's because I'm not supposed to take the lid off the pen until I'm ready to write. But the lid is really, like, see that? So I always accidentally take the lid off the pen and then it doesn't, you guys, because people think I, I, don't, I, I don't have good penmanship, which is true, and that I don't know how to work the pen. It's just, it's the lid on the pen. So let's, let's see, and it came off, so I don't know if it'll work or not. So it does work, all right. So here's the interesting thing. There is a time in life and and people in life, circumstances in life, places in life where there's incredible need. Um, And if you put God up here, and and I never know how to draw God, um, and if this is the baseline, there, there are times when there's incredible need. And I think this can happen in terms of like big long term need, things that aren't gonna change. Things that, that last, grief that lasts, pain that lasts for a long time, but it can also be acute need. It's a bad week. It's a bad night. It's a, you, know, you know what I'm saying? It's a bad morning. And I think every Sunday when we come to church, the unspoken reality for me is, is I stand back there. And when I preach, what I've, what I've realized over time, if you want to understand what kind of drive, to me, this preaching is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and death. 
if, if, it's, if it's something other than that, well, then I, 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 don't, I don't know that I want to be a preacher. Does that make sense? And so whatever the, the passage or the text is for that Sunday, it's text that's in God's scriptures that's, that's carried through for all these years for the people of God. It's something that has some sort of angle on eternal realities and consequences. And, and for us to somehow get past the light pollution that comes from cities, you know, and, and kind of keeps it to where we can't see what's really going on, to somehow get past the light pollution and to see beyond that and to anchor ourselves and to ground ourselves and to get oriented, some, somehow like that's extremely important business to me. It's, it's preaching is, is life and death to me. And so we come out here and, and it matters. Now that, that really takes on more of a specific focus when I realized that there are people coming in every Sunday to church that are so needy, desperate, hungry. There, there was a song that came out a number of years ago, and, and I remember it, was, it caught the Christian world by storm in, in this weird, awkward way because it was um, the refrain in the song was, I'm desperate for you. You guys remember that song? How, how did it go again? I'm desperate for you. I don't, I don't know. Um, I can't hear any of the rest of the song in my head right now. But you know what song I'm talking about? Uh, and, and people were like, I just don't know if I can sing that. It's a, little, it's a little awkward. It's a little too emotional. It's a little too whatever. And I remember thinking, if you, if you can't sing that, well... I mean, if we can't say that we're desperate for God, that we're longing for God, that we're hungry for God, that we're, we're basically crying out for God, if we can't sing that, then what are we doing when we're singing? You know, you know what I'm saying? Because to me, worship is when you come in, if you're in a needy position, if you're in a desperate position, if you're in a position of intense desire that there would be more God in your life, then you're coming in, if, if, if you're doing nothing else, you're praying and crying aloud to God and allowing the, the voices around you to help be a part of that song. And, and it's a collective song, and it's a prayer and, and instrumentation. God gave 10% of the people, you know, the, there's a statistic that the spiritual gifts or, or whatever you want to call it, that, that there's 10%, 10 of a community has a gift. So gift of evangelism, 10% have the gift of evangelism. Leadership, only about 10% have the gift of leadership, the gift of mercy, the gift of, of whatever else. And artistic gifts, there are 10% of you that God gave you gifts, artistic capabilities that he gave to you for the edif like all other spiritual gifts, for the edification of his family, of the body. What does that mean for artistic gifts to be the edification of the body? It means you, in doing your artistic thing, allow the rest of us to feel deeper and experience more than we would without you using your gifts, right? If, if it does nothing else, that's what art does, is it allows the rest of us to feel and so this song comes out, and we're like, ah, oh, it's a little awkward talking about being desperate for God. It's like, absolutely, absolutely, we should be on our knees singing that song. And, and so when I come out every Sunday, I, I remember, like, 
a long, long, long time ago, an African-American pastor preaching and really more than anyone else painted a picture of the emotional reality of people in any given congregation on any given Sunday. Beneath the makeup and the hair and the clothes and and the, the, ah, hey, how you doing, smiles, um, you know what you're dealing with. And you know what your fears are. And you know what your frustrations are. And you know what your weaknesses are. And, and you know that there's a need here. And so when you, when you experience the messiness of life and the pain of life, and you come into a place like this, more than anything else, I think sometimes you need to hear that you're not alone, that it's okay, and that somehow you can look to God in faith and know that he hears you. That the cry of the weak, the cry of the vulnerable, the cry of the oppressed always reaches the ear of God. But there's a other side to this too. And, and it's the people who from a material standpoint have plenty. And the felt reality isn't the need. The felt reality is a desire for amusement, a desire for pleasure, a desire for distraction, a desire to be made happy. That's what we do when everything's good, right? When, when all the work is done and when all the bills are paid and when everything's taken care of and we get left with leisure time and spare change, it means extra time, extra money. What do we, what do, we do with that? We, we go and make ourselves happy. And happiness is an interesting word. It's, in our culture today, it has two sides. Okay, one side would be more akin to pleasure. And it doesn't necessarily have any morality to it. It's just felt pleasure. The other side of the word happy is a lot like the word joy. And it's, a better way of saying it would be moral happiness. Moral happiness. Have you ever played with that phrase? And it's much more the classical sense. And it's more of a state of being and it's in concert with virtue. And, and so when we have spare change and spare time and, and extra and all this other stuff, we usually try to invest it into maximizing either the good or the bad type of happiness. And when we begin to do this, we begin to show our own orientation to self. And we begin to show that when push comes to, sh- to shove, we, we usually choose self rather than sacrifice. And self was the temptation that, that Satan brought to Jesus, and sacrifice was Jesus' response. You see, self is about the now. Sacrifice sees the future and future rewards and future possibilities. And the self is about only myself and, and, and my individualistic desires. And sacrifice is about community and creation. 
And there's this huge distinction between self and sacrifice in Scripture. And when we slap Christianity like a NASCAR sticker onto self, that's all it really becomes is just an external label that we carry with us. And at the core, the the orientation, the, the compass points to self. But if we come to Christ at the beginning and we know that he asks us to, to, to die to self, to put self to death, to kill self, to replace self, to be reborn, to be born again, and to be born anew so that at the very core of who we are, the orientation changes, and, and in following Christ, we're able to live a sacrificial life that, that's oriented outward Okay, when we understand, when we come to Christ, that that's the agenda, it changes the whole program. One of the biggest baffling questions we face is this paradox of always trying to resolve the messiness of life to get to that mystical, magical, promised season of life, golden years or, or whatever you want to call it, the best years, where it's all copacetic. It's all calm on all fronts. It's all, it's all dialed on all fronts. It's all good. And, and then you go, man, when I reach that place, or if I could just reach that place, I would have the most friends in the world. Why? Because I'd be so happy. I mean, I'd be, I'd be, real, I'd be a lot of fun to be with. In that. So I need to hurry up and get there. And Micah's poem is, is prophetic. Because life, life isn't clay that we mold. It's, it's, it's a boxer that fights back, you know. And, but we, we have this weird, strange thing. So when we come to church, if we don't, if, if, we, if this is what's subtly driving us, we, we don't always call attention to it, put it out here. It's subtle a lot of times. We just go along with the flow. We just, we just it's our habit. We just kind of fall into it. But it's down here. And if this is what's driving us, we come to church. And what we're coming to church for is, I, I need some good marriage principles. Not that marriage principles are wrong, but it's, I need some good marriage principles. Why? Because I'm, I, that's part of the tension. I need to get that solved so that I can, I can be. And I need, some, I need maybe some money principles, and I need maybe some relational principles, and I, 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 need to, I need to feel like I'm a good Christian because that would help with the guilt issues that I've got. And I need to meet a girl at church, or maybe I'm a single girl, and I need to meet a guy at church, and that's part of the agenda of becoming happy. And, and I've got all these things, and, and in doing all this, I'm like, man, this is so much to juggle. I, I just can't handle all this and I'm not in control of all of it it's really complicated and if I get this kind of going all of a sudden this one over here is out of whack and and I get this friendship going and all of a sudden this person's talking bad about me and how am I supposed to do with all this and so then I, 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 I oh that's right God's powerful maybe God will lend a hand and help me spin all these plates and so oh that's what prayer is probably about let me let me pray and let me, God, okay, you take care of the wife. Um, I'll take care of spending money and, uh, and, and being fun for people to be friends with. And then, oh, by the way, um, can you slay this person? Because um, they deserve it. And, oh, by the way, you know, uh, I didn't study, um, 
but, but it, was, it was because I was hanging out with my friends, and God, I know you like community, so can you help me on this test? I mean, just a little special sauce, you know? And um, Oh, you know, that's what prayer is about. And then, and then it doesn't, it's, it, man, it's not quite working. I tried to get my life dialed. Um, oh, and then I, I, I prayed so God would help me get my life dialed. And life's still messy. Well, now I'm disillusioned. And I, and I don't know what to do anymore, so I, I default to what Americans do best. I just, I find ways to kill time. Numb the pain. Vent my frustrations. Feed on my self-pity. And I, and I kind of go that way. And what I'm saying is if we, if we realize that the program from the very beginning was that self dies, gets replaced with sacrifice because when we're in fellowship with Christ, we do as he did. And he laid down his life for others. It was a program of sacrifice. And then when we realize someone's talking bad about us, you know what I've begun to realize? When you try hard to be obedient to God's will in your life, where you feel God is calling you to go, you will lose relationships. I, I used to just think of relationships as if you, if you do bad things to people, they don't like it and they get mad at you and you, you lose relationships. But I, I used to be under this illusion that if, if you were godly enough, everyone would, would you, you'd be that person that everybody liked. You know, what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? And I'm going to realize it's not biblical. I mean, Jesus was, was perfect yet highly controversial and hated and harassed and threatened and injured. And, and sometimes to bend to where God wants you to go means you're not doing something that someone else thinks you should be doing or they want you doing, and they're not going to like you for that. And so Paul talks about being harassed on all sides and persecuted and, and undergoing all these kind of trials and stonings and beatings and shipwrecks. And, and he's basically saying all these things. And what he's really saying is, uh, this is a part of me living out God's will for my life. This is what godliness looks like in my life. And it fits, it harmonizes with sacrifice. It completely blows the paradigm if we're thinking about self. And I think there are needy people that come to church and what they don't need are three principles. Those might be helpful, but what they really need is grace. What they really need is, is to see God um, as a big God, as a, as a loving God, as a God who cares, to be reassured by the promises of God that he does hear the cries and he has not forgotten. And, and this is important that we do this in church. And then on this side, what's, what's the equation? See, here's the interesting thing. Those that have plenty 
Let's just say that. In faith, there's also now a responsibility to be faithful. Jesus says, if you have two coats and see someone who only has one, give one of your coats to the one in need so that you both may have a coat. Isaiah 58, let's just turn there real quick. Isaiah 58, it's a a passage on worship and knowing God and being with God. I mean, listen to how this is, 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 we'll just read the whole thing. Let's just fly through it. True fasting, Isaiah 58. Shout aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They pray a lot. Day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. They study a lot. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near to them. Because so far it sounds like just a good evangelical church. Praying, studying, and hungry for God to come near. And they say this, why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? This is what I was just describing. We, 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 we run hard after God with all this excitement and all the stars in our eyes. And then we, wait a second, it's not working. And then we get disillusioned. We say, why have we done this and you've not noticed God? And God says this, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. Selfish. And you exploit all your workers. Now, here's the interesting thing. How many of you guys have workers? Every single one of you who buys a consumer good in any store has a whole chain of workers that have worked for you. And you're compensating them as you pay for the good that they've put their hands on to create for you to be able to consume. See, we've lost this aspect of justice that it's tied to the workers because we don't live in a culture where there's one layer between those consuming and those working. We, we have all these extra layers that we don't see, and so we, we just walk in, and God says, you exploit all your workers, meaning that you want the balance to make you have more at the expense of whether they have less or not. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife. You guys argue with each other and striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high because it isn't the not eating that I'm looking at. It's your heart that I'm looking at. It's your deeds that I'm looking at. The the not eating part is just the ceremonial wrap to what's really happening at the core. And I'm calling you out on that because I can't bless that. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, 
to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked, to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. And if you do this, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. It'll be your backstop. It'll protect you. It'll help carry you through life because I've got you as you sacrifice and live by faith. I will prove myself faithful, says God. See, it's reciprocating. And as we move forward this way, I will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here I am. And it goes on and keeps saying the same thing over and over. And Jesus picks this up in Matthew 25, which is a a passage um, in some way, shape, or form is familiar to all of us. And he's talking about the sheep and the goats. And he says, in that day when you get to heaven, there's going to be two kinds and there's going to be the sheep. And he says, um, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to, to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. You know where he got that from? He just ripped the paragraph right out of Isaiah 58. And he says, when you come to heaven, those of you who have done true fasting, who've had your voice heard on high, that I've been able to, to love and join and be with and uphold, when you come, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to celebrate you. I'm going to celebrate you. And they say, well, when did we do this? And he said, whenever you saw somebody that was without, and you did it for them, you did it for me. And then he goes on to other people and he says, you didn't do these things. They say, well, we didn't see you. How can you hold us accountable? And there's a difference here. The first group did the golden rule. What's the golden rule? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. When does it pertain? Whenever there's an opportunity. The silver rule says don't do to others what you wouldn't have them do to you. When does it pertain? Never, really. As long as I don't harm you, I have zero obligation to ever do anything for you. You can have someone looking out of their window in Brooklyn and watch somebody getting mugged and not do anything. Why? Because in America, we think the golden rule is the silver rule. And as long as I'm not the one doing it, well, I didn't do anything wrong. You know? and, and Jesus is talking to Christians. And he's saying, I didn't call you to the silver rule. Your standard of righteousness isn't Americanism. You know, Don't just be a good American and that's the standard for righteousness. I call you to something incredibly higher that, that has this thing that it requires of you at all times. And in all situations. And it, as you have... There's this obligation to be faithful with what I've given you, to be a good steward with what I've given you. I bless so that you can bless others. And so come back to Revelation chapter 3 with me real quick. 
Jesus is so severe in this little passage. He says, I know your deeds. I know your works. I know where you're spending your time. I know that your religious actions and, and that your prayers and your fasting, I, I know that it has nothing to do with what I want it to do with. I know this. And here's the thing. This is what it's like to me. It's not like hot water. It's not like cold water. So in Laodicea, I want to show you a couple pictures. They have pipes. They're, they're six miles, four miles away from a river and six miles away from hot springs. And, and so they piped. I mean, the Romans were crazy people. I think they were an alien race that came down with all sorts of wild technology. But they had these pipes, and they would pipe in water. And I want to show you uh, Hierapolis, which is, these are the mountains... Um, one direction, so always in Laodicea, you know what cold water is, always. Um, and then when you get to Hierapolis, this is one of kind of the UNESCO places of the world. It's these calcium flows, and you see the little pools in there? It's, a, it's an ancient hot springs. You can see the water there? It's an ancient hot springs. The biggest ancient cemetery uh, per capita is right outside of Heropolis, which would have been just a couple miles away from Laodicea. Why? Because everyone from Asia Minor that had money and had an ailment or was dying traveled to Hierapolis to sit in these hot pools and to, and, and to basically get the mineral bath and that whole kind of a thing. And so in Laodicea, right up on one hill is Hierapolis and this whole kind of the hot water is, is healthy and it's nutritional and it's healing properties and it's, it's all this goodness. And on the other side, you have this understanding of, of the river and then the mountains and the pipes and cold water. And then you have this strange place where they meet where, those, those, where I showed you that cluster of pipes and, and the water would have been lukewarm. Lukewarm. It's not the one and it's not the other, it's not really exciting on this side, and it's not really exciting on this side, it's neutral. It's not what you want, it's not what you expect, it's just, it's, it's just lukewarm. And so Jesus is saying, man, I would expect you to be extreme if you're my followers, because a sacrificial life is a dangerous life. A sacrificial life is a dangerous life. It's an extreme life. It's always reaching outside of itself. And Jesus is saying, I would expect you to be over here, or I would expect you to be over here, but you're in the middle, and it drives me crazy. If you've, if you've been a parent and ever seen a kid that's just making a decision, that's just a, it's just the wrong, you're just choosing not to be happy, or you're just choosing to cause problems. And it begins to just frustrate you because you're like, ah, I, all you'd have to do is this or this, and it's so simple, but you're not. And you get so frustrated with this. And so Jesus says, you should be hot or you should be cold, but you're lukewarm, and so I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. The Greek is vomit. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. You, me, us. I mean, vomit out of his mouth. I don't want that. I'm not happy with that. I'm not okay with that. This is what he's saying to these people. And then he goes on and, 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 and just expounds it real quickly and, and just says, you say you're rich and you've acquired wealth and you don't need a thing. You think life is great. 
but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve, they were famous for their eye salve, salve to put on your eyes so that you can see those whom I love, I rebuke. I'm rebuking you, Laodicea. I'm rebu- I am disciplining you. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. My words are severe. So be earnest and repent. How do you, as a preacher, preach the severe words of Christ? I mean, it's so hard for us. We live the silver rule in here. We all think we're good. And we do so much on our own strength. We don't, this is just the curse of being an American. We grow up with so much advantage that I love. But there's, a, there's, there's, there's two sides to that coin, isn't there? I take so much for granted. I, I think I can do so much. I really think I'm good. And, and am I really reaching out in faith? Am I really getting outside of myself? Am I really sacrificing? Am I really taking all that I have Time, energy, resources, and saying, it's your stuff, God. How do you want me to invest it? Am I really really there? Am I extreme? And, And so how do we preach these words? And here's the thing. I think sometimes preachers either preach severe words, and it feels really harsh. You know, how was the sermon today? I don't know. Ken talked about me getting vomited out of God's mouth. Uh... I felt loved. (laughs) But here's the thing. Listen to where Jesus goes with this. How many people turn on a dime like this? Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. There's always grace on the backside of the severity with Jesus. Jesus, through his words here, says he expects, he he knows that there's a mixed audience and that some will hear what he's saying and others will not. His, His words here anticipate the response Some of you, you don't have ears to hear or eyes to see. You're not going to get it. You're going to choose not to get it, whatever it is. And some of you are going to go, dang, I don't want self-sufficiency. I want dependence. I don't want to garb up self. I want self to be transformed and redeemed. And so Jesus is like, "I I know some of you aren't going to get it. Some of you are. And those of you that do, I'm standing here at this door and knocking. You've excommunicated me from your church fellowship. We talk all the time about if Jesus were to leave the building, if the Holy Spirit were to leave Antioch, how long would it be before anyone would notice? If the Holy Spirit were to leave your life or not operate in your life, would you notice Have you written the equation of your life in such a way that it's necessary, that that the addition of Jesus is necessary to make it balance? 
Have you written the equation of your life such that the addition of Christ is necessary in order for it to balance? If Christ left, would you notice? So he's saying, look, in all this, you've pushed me out. But guess what? I'm patient. I'm humbling myself like the person left out of the party. And I'm knocking. And if you would just hear me and open that door, I would come in and I would fix you. I would love you. I would grace you. I would redeem you. I would change you. I would help you. So in the middle of all this severe language, Jesus holds forward this offer of grace, the good news, the gospel of salvation, and that's where we're left. Do you have a severe faith? Are you willing, even in your fear, to trust Christ to bring you out of yourself into the awkward place of dependence, living for more than just pleasure, comfort, ease? Are, are you willing to let him fix you from the inside out? And it's, it's that awkward place of faith, that dangerous question of submission and that's what's just right there for us. We as a community won't have one communal answer or response to that. This is an offer to each of us individually, to families, to men, to women. And each of us will either fall to one side or the other in response to these words to this offer, to this question, to this invitation that Jesus puts there. And it's as scary as all get out. And that's, in my mind, the genesis of true prayer. I mean, that can get me to fall to my knees and pray like, like mad. Because I, I don't know what to do with that. Because I can't do it in and of myself. I can't. I can't do that, but I want to. So I go home, I bury my, my head in, in the couch, and I cry out. And you could even say it's a desperate cry. I'm desperate for you. Father, let us not live our lives only to be spit out of your mouth. Let us take your son's warnings serious, awaken in us a hunger and a desire for something more. Let us not live our lives only to get spit out of, of your mouth. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience and your long-suffering. In Christ's name, amen.